Welcome to the Gamers Over 50 podcast. This is episode 42 in television. Real quick, I have moved my microphone, so I apologize if it's louder today or if it sounds weird. Um, not my intention, but it's just happening. Uh, but for this podcast, I want to talk about Intellivision. And I really want to start about talking about this really amazing movie called The Pirates of Silicon Valley. And if you've kind of ever wondered what happened between Apple and Microsoft, like back in the 70s and 80s, uh, this is a movie to watch. And it was really kind of a neat movie because after you live through it and then you go to work for one of the companies and you followed through and you know all the players and the people and you kind of get an idea. Um, it, it really was, was much more interesting than I thought. You probably would find it interesting if you don't know the story either. It's also kind of interesting because the Anthony Michael Hall, who was the kid in 16, or not, oh, he's in 16 Candles, but I'm always thinking the Breakfast Club was like the really smart kid. It's like now he became Bill Gates. So it's kind of funny how he becomes Bill Gates. And then Steve Jobs is played by Noah Wiley, who was on ER and a bunch of other stuff. But there's a, a scene in the movie, and I'm not really giving you too much about else about the movie, where they talk about, um, and Bill Gates brings this up and he says, or Anthony Michael Hall's character, Bill Gates, brings this up and says, we, you know, we he talks about Xerox and how both companies took ideas of tech, of knowledge, of peripherals, et cetera, from Xerox and used them in their hardware and software. And so I, I kind of thought about in television in the same way. And in my opinion, my humble opinion, it is the Xerox of video game consoles. Um, we're, we're going to explore how Intellivision was ahead of its time. Um, sadly, I only had one friend when I was growing up with Intellivision. So a lot of this has been post uh, knowing and seeing it immediately. But, you know, my friend Steve Gordon had one. His mom was a really cool choir teacher and the nicest lady around and deserves any anyone who is as nice as she was deserves a shout out on a podcast. Um, but, you know, Steve was really awesome and it was fun to come over and hang out. Uh, his house, play and television, which was completely different from our Atari in every way. And, you know, the Intellivision was enti entirely ahead of the entire video game field. And then they even pushed a little farther. And some of that might have been the worst thing it could have done, right? Because your technology outgrows or becomes too much for your large, you know, large set of consumers. It may fit for your very, you know, front end, cutting edge kind of folks, but you know, the technology was amazing. Um, and I think some people just didn't understand it. So that's my two cents. And that's coming from someone who uh, did not, you know, work like technology a lot and had a lot of people around them that didn't understand it either. And dealt with a lot of that, <laughs> the bullying we all did ha 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 in the seventies and eighties. Um, but let's step into a little bit of the, the, the history. And the good news is there's a future for Intellivision. So there's a good news at the end of this. It's not just talking about another uh, console that kind of disappeared, sadly, like Atari. Although Atari's never really disappeared. Anywho, so the, the Intellivision was released by Mattel Electronics. Yes, that Mattel. Um, if you had the little handheld um, baseball or football, I think they had a soccer one. It was like, click, 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 click. it drove my parents crazy. Um, it did. I think they eventually put a headphone jack in that. So that was probably for the best. Maybe one of the, again, one of the ahead of their time kind of thought processes. Um, but it was developed by Mattel Electronics. And it was actually called Intellivision for Intelligent Television because they had been thinking of 
the future of not just a console like an Atari. They were thinking beyond this. It started development in the seven in 77, so released in 79. And they really started developing games in 78, which is kind of interesting. All right. So we start developing the console, we start doing our games, and we those games are going to come out with the console. So it was really in from a development standpoint, pretty darn smart to get it out that way. What was crazy is they continued developing until the night until 1990. So, you know, this is a game system that I wish I had known. I probably would have owned another Intellivision and been playing it all the way through college. Maybe not. Maybe a little more than, than the Nintendo. But, you know, from 1980 to 1983, 3 million Intellivision units were sold. So a little bit about introductions because it has an interesting introduction as well. So the Intellivision, 1979, Las Vegas CES in January as a modular home computer with a master component. And it was priced at 165 And they were talking about a keyboard component that would also come out at 165 then in Chicago in CES, six months later, there was talking about it at, oh, it will be $250. And the reason behind that was a shortage of microchips from the manufacturer general instrument, and they just couldn't get enough out. So obviously supply and demand kick in, cost goes up. So in fall, Sylvania marketed their branded in television in their GTE stores, which if if you remember Sylvania, they had these GT stores and GT was like a, you know, a phone product and all these other things we hear about today. But so they, they released it for $280, but this was only in Philadelphia, Baltimore and Washington, Washington, DC. And so on December 3rd, they then started putting in televisions in the Gotts Chalks department stores. Those were going at 275. Then in December, uh, well, Christmas time, let's just say Christmas of 1979, uh, they had the Intellivision in the JCPenney catalog. And then they also had the Intellivision uh, with others in other stores nationwide with a library of 10 cartridges. So um, really kind of crazy about this. So it was delivered on such a large scale that you know, it's one of those items that were, you know, completely, um, I'm, I'm completely blown away is that it was sold in all these different places. So, you know, how is this? It's a pre-internet, right? You couldn't check your prices online. You have a kid maybe in Vegas spends 165, another one in Philadelphia, 280. So welcome to the beginning of, you know, technology as well with all the chip components, et cetera. Etc. And, you know, there are several times in video game, in electronics, in devices where this has happened, where you can't get the parts. Um, in fact, we're kind of seeing it right now during during COVID. We're seeing where we can't get that many parts. Um, I have a about a Kickstarter purchase and it was like, oh, well, we'll have it out in six months. Well, we're, I think, 16 months in. Totally understandable because we can't get parts and things can't be built. Understand that. All right. But also, let's talk about the fact that how many places are delivered, but especially in the JCPenney Christmas catalog. And if anyone remembers the Christmas catalog, and I just probably brought back a lot of happy memories to folks, it was probably one of the biggest casualties of the information age. Because when I was a kid, there are two times you cared about the mail. Your birthday, when your grandmother would send you a card, or you get mail, money mail. Um, but when you get these JCPenney and then even Sears catalogs show up your house 
And I say catalogs because like you would get the Sears and the JCPenney almost in the same day or like day before, you know, it was crazy. Whoever got there first, probably pick stuff out and hand it to your mom and dad with circles all over it. Nowadays we'd have post-it notes all jammed all over the place in it maybe. Um, but this was a time when you would have these catalogs and they had every, it's like the toy section was the greatest moment of your life. Cause you, you, we didn't go to the store, right? There wasn't a Walmart or, or, you know, target that you went to all the time. You would go to the store, like a department store, <laughs> only when you needed new pants for school, probably. Um, unless you were a glutton and your mother would drag you everywhere. But, you know, go ask someone over 45 about that. I mean, the only time you saw other than Saturday morning cartoons were these giant catalogs and they were the greatest things ever. It was like the best time you would see all the newest, coolest stuff. So, you know, these catalogs are kind of disappeared, but, you know, in television wasn't the first kind of game system in them, but it was really cool to see new, interesting game systems, you know, um, in there, especially when we had the Atari and then now we have the Intellivision. See, there'd only been one, right? There'd only ever been one game system. It was almost like, where did you get your bike? Oh, everybody had a Huffy or a Schwinn. If you're rich, you had a Schwinn. If you had a regular kids, we all had a Huffies just because they're cheap. But, you know, it's going back to that same exact thought process of that's where you would see these things. So, okay. So back, our, our memory lane moment is done. But, we, you know, that was really amazing that it went into those catalogs. All right. Also, what was kind of crazy is that you have Atari, who's this market leader, who's winning in the video game world. And then you have a television that came out. And so a television, again, intelligent television, also had intelligent marketing. They got a guy named George Plimpton. If you know who George Plimpton is, kudos for you. You're going to find out a little bit about him. Um, but he came out and he would talk about the superiority of the graphics and the sound to the Atari. And they'd put the games next to each other. And you're just like, wow, that's so crazy because and we'll talk about even the technology of why that graphic was great but you know George Plumpton was kind of a weird guy and I say that because he was this really prolific writer who would do these crazy things like go with a sports team and try out for the sports team and he would just get you know destroyed and it was just not go well for him um, so much so that he I think let's see he did football I think he did baseball maybe soccer. I, mean, I don't think he did basketball. I know that, but he also created, created this kind of like crazy story with the Mets, the New York Mets, um, about this amazing pitcher that was coming out of, I think he was coming out of India at the time, if I remember, but I know, well, no, he wouldn't oh, see. He was a Buddhist. I remember Buddhist. He was, so he's coming somewhere out of Asia Pacific, right? So he's coming out of there, but he could throw 160 mile an hour fastball suckered everybody into it um totally blew everything up right like made things go crazy um and it could have kind of messed up his karma and his running skills because you know people didn't want to be messed around with it wasn't cool uh, also he was not martha plimpton's uh, da uh father so that's not his daughter just in case you've all been wondering some people have now Again, one of the slogans coming back from George Plimpton was it's the closest thing to the real thing. And they compared things like golf games. 
where other you know games had like a blip or and when i say a blip it's like a it's i wish i had like my little sound a soundboard here and i could click a blip you you know what they sound like it's just yeah, the quick beep from an old time computer or game system but it also had cruder graphics and the re reason behind that was intellivisions put a lot of energy into and i should say a lot of energy a lot of technical engineering into their graphics chips and in how their games ran and in how the executive functioning of a console would run as well. So, you know, they really put a lot of energy in this. There was no false advertising to say that the Intellivision wasn't better. All right. So in its first year, sold out of 175,000 units. It's not a lot of units, right? Because you talk about like Atari doing 6 million in a year, 175. But in 1981, well, first year, I think 79, 1981, they were up to over a million units, which is, you know, obviously five times more. Very, very good stuff. But in, you know, 1984, Mattel decided, well, you know, we, we really want to sell. We don't want to do electronics. We want to stay, you know, because they saw what was kind of coming in 1981. They were thinking about it. They, you know, in 1980, you know, probably did in 1984. Totally went out and sold everything over to their electronics division. And the people who bought it called it INTV Corporation. Still pretty good. And if you remember back in Atari, they had like 19 different names within a year. I'm kidding. They had like 10 or 11. Um, but, you know, Intellivision went out and sold all that. So, you know, this is kind of crazy because Intellivision wasn't selling as many, but it had such a better process except for the problem is that price point was back and forth up and down um if they have a better chance of getting you know a lower price point if they can get the chips if they can do those types of things it goes better so let's talk a little bit about that technology that technical engineering level that they had because you know and i apologize this might get a little boring but it was exactly what made them better and why it's so cool and what makes a lot of our gaming systems today that much easier and much cooler to play on. So Intellivision was developed again and by Mattel in Hawthorne, California. So we got that in. So if you've ever been to Hawthorne or you're from Hawthorne, yay, Intellivision. Um, and Mattel had really started, like I said, on those little digital screens. And they still sell those, which blows my mind. They're still a pain in the butt to try to win. You can play them for hours. They, uh, I think they would bore most kids nowadays who have a high level of graphic uh, fun out there. Anywho. Um, but Mattel's, you know, they started working on the system. And they really, really, really wanted to move to really new and expensive chipset because it was going to run better than everything. It was going to make things much, much crisper. It was going to not be blocky. And when I say blocky, <clears throat> I always like to think of the Atari Pac-Man game or even combat, right? They were, they were blocky, but you know, and television was trying to get to a better uh, pixelation and pixelation is how many pixels you have in a square, et cetera. Da -da -da -da. So they went out and they started working out on these, these different, you know, national cement conductor. They looked at general instrument. This is long before Intel, Intel, et cetera, AMD. So they, they came back and they said, you know what? I think they're, we're going to go with the general instrument chipset. Everybody kind of liked it. Um, you know, it, it worked, but you know, after they had chose, and I had said national instrument before, they didn't move the general instrument. 
So what's really kind of crazy about this is as they're going through building the system out, they go out and they're bringing some folks in, some student hires to program the first games. So a man named David Rolf went out and he went to Caltech and just basically hired some folks. And then he got a group of artists that were led by David James, Dave James. And, you know, really it's kind of crazy to think that you have that level of, of dedication that you're going after the people on the cutting edge. So if you have not seen the new Zack Snyder, not Zack Snyder, Zack Snyder. Oh, now I'm never going to get in one of his movies. Zack Snyder cut of the justice league, but you may have probably seen the Russo brothers, Avengers, infinity war in game. You know, if you haven't seen them, bummer, sorry about that. But Mattel took the time that both Zack and the Russo brothers put into their projects to build an amazing and excellent game system. And they had the right chipset. So you'd have the great graphics. You'd have the great moving around. You'd be able to do a lot of things. Now, you know, if I were the kind of guy who told people to get off my lawn or back in my day type of statements, I would say back in my day, Mattel cared enough about quality. They built the Intellivision, but they did. They cared. They made it amazing. I mean, the power that this thing had would allow you to see just amazing graphics. And, and they were. They were. I remember going and seeing that on television. I'd come home and be like, Ugh, Atari. Bleh. So the Intellivision, you know, master component, doing air quotes, branded there, was distributed by a lot of different people. And, you know, it was kind of interesting because I already talked about pennies and all the other folks, but it also was, you know, sold by Sears and they called it the Super Video Arcade. And they had a Radio Shack version called the Tandy Vision One. And in Japan, they had one called, you know, and it was branded. Uh, what was it named by Bandai? I remember it was like, I think it was in television consoles was what it was called. But you had all of this hardware where everyone cared about the hardware. So let's talk about software. So we're about to get super technical, super apologies, but inside every Intellivision is 4K of read-only memory, ROM, containing the executive software. Now this provides two benefits. You can have reusable code effectively making your 4K cartridge that had some of that executive on it into an 8K cartridge because they no longer needed the extra 4K. So think about this. When I had an Atari cartridge and I stuck it in, it was using 8K of ROM. But 4K of that was the executive function and 4K of that was the game. By putting that ROM <clears throat> into the hardware, that means every Intellivision cartridge was 8K of game or a you know double the size of games of everybody else. So this allowed for your software developers to build amazing games. And so they were able to build some of these kind of crazy things. So thinking of the software development process and your software developers and giving them enough space to work for the vision of their game to build out a large scale game really was a huge deal. And like I said, David Rolf went out and got these folks that were summer students. And, you know, think about being in that group. Like I could be sitting in like the computer lab and like, anybody want to start developing games for a television? And I'm sure my hand would have definitely shot up and have been like, oh, totally, totally, bring me on, come on, you know? So he, he brought in people 
who were young enough to understand gaming, understand technology, go through it. Okay. There's the hardware and software. There's a drawback. The drawback is that it became too flexible. And you've heard Bandai, Sears, Penny, Radio Shack. I can't even remember that store right after. And I even just said it a few minutes in uh, the department store. Buying it in everywhere, you have the ability that people can make it, you know, change the chipset as they want to, and they can change some of the programming on the chipset so that exact function runs less efficiently. So a big drawback is that, you you know, maybe you're hoping that the game would run at 60 hertz of a frame rate, which is how you see the screen. Let's, we're not going to get super depth in this, but instead it was running at 20. So that was a drawback. Now, if you had a brother like me or a friend like me or someone that's walking down the street, you could say, you know, say, play a little bit against the computer, you could do a great job of that. But the problem with this, you know, okay, great. You bring your friend over, me over, we can play games and I'll win so you can play your game, you know, play four. But because of all of this exact function changing, the artificial intelligence part was taken out. So you didn't have something you played against. You had to have me to play against me, which probably if we played and I was better than you, it would not be as much fun. Or if we, you know, you were better than me, it would not be as much fun. So there was a lot of two players. So anybody who had one child, well, I'm sorry, you only had one child, too bad. But you only have one person who plays in television, so you better find them a friend that's going to go play in television with them. All right. So from that point of view, we had those, you know, pieces where you had two-player, nor artificial intelligence. We're dumbing down our system a little bit. Then you had the effect of people being hired or potentially being hired away from Atari. So you have these, you know, you, you've created a brand new set of programmers that are really, really smart. And so you got to like hide these people. And so the interesting was the programmers that were on television were called the Blue Sky Rangers. Now, if you're ever thinking of naming a character in a game or a uh, alliance or a guild or something, name it the Blue Sky Rangers, because no one, unless they know about in television, will know what that is, and you'll sound really cool. Um, but they did also try to hide their identity and their work location. This is good and bad because, and the drawback, is because you have folks that maybe get tired of working and then they want to go find something. They want to go look for something. That's fine. But also when you're taking people who have not been developing games, you're going to start seeing games <clears throat> that really start real world concepts like we're going to play sports or we're going to play war games. It's not going to go too in depth in the fantasy world. Not totally true, but also you're going to find some of that. Okay. One more drawback, and I'm trying not to crap on this, but it's like when you have a great technology and sometimes you don't effectively use it. It happens. So the other side of things were that they had these 12 keypad buttons and not every game used all 12 keypads. So you had these overlays. So if you ripped your overlay or you lost your overlay or you took it to your friend's house and it got stuck there, you're out of an overlay, you're right? You wouldn't be able to find those kind of things. And it was a pain because you'd, you know, wouldn't know which button to hit after that. All right. Last part. In 81, the programmers started looking for credit and royalties, which if you're going to hide your folks and you're going to make them create a lot of stuff, then you probably need to think about, oh, I need to go 
take some of those programmers and maybe either compensate them or find ways to make it so they don't leave the company other than, you know, sneaking them and keeping them in hidden locations. Now, a lot of these folks uh, basically help create some third-party publishers. Other folks joined Activision and Tari. Um, and then there was a group that developed Cheshire Engineering. All right. So after 1981, you had a group of folks that were developing their own cartridges. So then you had, you know, folks like Activision, Imagic, Coleco, ColecoVision, not ColecoVision. I actually thought about doing a podcast on ColecoVision, but I was worried it would be really short and wouldn't be awesome. So what I may do is do a podcast where I have a few um, platforms that are kind of like ColecoVision, et cetera. Okay. But you had these different groups that came around. Now, after we've talked about the hardware, software, the games, the game developers, etc. Now let's start talking about the really cool stuff. The keyboard component. All right. So from the very beginning, and you probably heard me say this early on, they wanted to put a keyboard on this. They wanted to build a system that had a keyboard that you could, you know, type into it. They wanted to make this into a modular home computer. That's pretty awesome because if you have a modular home computer, uh, then it's not a video game, but it's also a computer, maybe a word processor and other things. So, um, you know, they wanted to make sure they had a tape drive that could connect it to this thing. And at the time, tape drives were the thing. Don't make fun of it. Um, but it was a way to store data on a tape drive because we didn't have like key drives and we didn't have USB controllers at all. So think about this was, they again, like I said, they were not just trying to build a game system. They're trying to build a computer. They were trying to build something that could probably stream video and music in the 1980s. So I want you to think that in 20, 40, sorry, 41 years ago, we're in 2021, 41 years ago, they were thinking about streaming data. So when I say, you know, it was ahead of its time, it was ahead of its time. Now, I don't want to go too in-depth on the keyboard. If you want to find out a lot about the keyboard, go take a look at Wikipedia. And please do, if you do go take a look at Wikipedia, please go out there and donate some money. All right. Now, the cool thing about the keyboard was they had some pretty cool games that went along with it, including, well, I would call them programs. Let's call them games. Conversational French speaking, sorry, sorry, speaking, spelling challenge, uh, basic applications that would help you write basic on it, family budgeting, geography challenge, crosswords, and of course, good old Jack LaLanne, physical conditioning. So see, this is not just a computer. This was a device that took over several functions in your house. Budget, word processor, games, physical conditioning. Like think about how many people have been sitting on a Peloton, streaming data, streaming video, streaming sound. All right. So the keyboard component, this is the sad part. So the keyboard component, they thought they were going to get out there. They, it took forever to get this thing out there. And in 1981, they got a fully, finally implemented keyboard, which was released in two places, Seattle and New Orleans. Because when I'm thinking about technology, I do think about Seattle. But then I start going, New Orleans? Oh, maybe there's a lot of folks that had Intellivisions in New Orleans. I don't know. You had to buy it directly from 
Mattel, and you can actually buy a Alphacom printer. And if you know what an Alphacom printer is, good to you. You get a bonus point today, but you can only get it by mail order. So Intellivision moved to what? The original mail order buying technology parts. That was actually a big deal back in the late 70s, early 80s. Now, the crazy thing about this was, you know, people pre-ordered this. People said, we need this. You know, in television, you're going to give us this. You, you promised this in 79. Promise, promise, promise. They didn't get it. In television, then had to start paying fines. Really, really crazy stuff. So in television, paying fines for getting this keyboard out. Now, that's for getting 4,000 of those keyboards out. They only built 4,000 of them. They weren't sure how many even got into people's hands or were in programmers' hands or in development teams. But it is considered, not in the top 10, but number 11 of the dumbest 25 moments in games by GameSpy, of course. If you haven't been on GameSpy, it's a pretty cool site. All right. Now, it's keyboard. Then they had the ECS. So the ECS was not just... The keyboard. It was not in the keyboard. It was actually a basic development system or BDS to be sold as an educational device. So the BDS group, who actually, wait, did I read that wrong? I apologize. So the BDS group who was out there were trying to, um, it, they had a rival engineering team who was trying to create this. And so the BDS group was working as an, like I said, as an educational device. And they kept working on it and focusing on it. And they called something called Lucky that eventually came the ECS. So the ECS, or what do we call it again? The Entertainment Computer System, which was all computing, was delivered around 1982. And it was actually called Lucky, which stands for Low Cost Use Low User Cost Keyboard Interface, was released out in 1982. All right, so we're going to talk about that on the other side. I'm going to click the stop, and we'll see you in just a sec. And I'm back. So, okay, back to the ECS. So in 82, they now talked about this ill-fated keyboard that was going out, had this huge thing talking uh, about the ECS at the 1982 Christmas season. They wanted to get it out of the store. And by the time the ECS made it, all the way out, it basically there had been a huge shakeup at the top of, of Mattel that really pulled everybody away from saying, ah, we're going to work on, you know, these hardware pieces. We want to go more towards software. What's really sad, though, is the ECS had four players. You could play four player game on ECS, as well as you had extra hand controllers. I mean, you obviously play four player games. Um, and they, they had some really cool games like World Cup Soccer. Now, soccer on a game system is so much fun. I actually enjoy playing soccer on a game system more than I like watching soccer. Please don't hate me for that. It's just who I am. But I also like watching long-distance swimming, so maybe that's just where I'm at. Obviously a little weird there. But, the you know, the, the ECS had a ton of feature updates like hardware on, on developing the RAM more. It had a huge ability for you to have everything you wanted in a game system in the early 80s, things that we wanted and we got in the mid-2000s. So think of it this way. The ECS wasn't a give up. It was that we were going to the moon, but we got stuck in orbit. 
It was not an Apollo 11. It got stuck in orbit. It didn't break. But at the time, it was a really good try. It was, again, ahead of its time because you could play four players. Think if you were playing a game and you could have four people sitting around. Now the entire family is functioning. Now everybody's playing this game. Really big deal. You know, there are probably a billion times where something's changed because of a leadership change or a technology change that eh, maybe have screwed something up. Good. All right. So we talked about the ECS. We talked about the keyboard and the burner. Now let's talk about IntelliVoice. I thought I saved this for last too because I thought IntelliVoice was the coolest. So IntelliVoice, IntelliVoice in 1982 was released, and it's called the IntelliVision, the IntelliVoice Voice Synthesis Module. Well, that was tough to say for everybody, but we either do a male or a female game, and it had kind of a distinct accent for each one. And there were several games that were designed for the IntelliVoice. And what was cool about it is you could just plug the IntelliVoice in. So right, you know. And I want to make this clear. Anyone who saw war games and was sitting there going, oh, my God, the computer is talking to itself. And television was thinking about it ahead of time for game systems. They were going to stream voice. Think about being able to do calls. I didn't even bring that up earlier. So you can do voice calls, et cetera. Anywho, let's talk about that. But the IntelliVoice had a chipset, again, developed by our good friends at General Instrument, that would allow you to take that. Uh, IntelliVoice plug it directly in and they had planned using the IntelliVoice to connect it with wireless hand controllers. Remember what I said? Like, so IntelliVoice had one phrase stored, some common words, but it would pull everything else from the, the card memory. And I'm going to get to that thing. And it had a plan for wireless controllers. Wireless controllers then end up to like 30 years after that. We were all connected 20 feet in front of our TV because you buy like the extenders up until then. But they were so far ahead with those wireless controllers. So remember what I said, this is a system far advanced ahead of anything we'd ever had. All right. So with that, they built this state-of-the-art voice system that you would be able to use, you'd be able to talk to. And, you know, 8K as well as 12K so they had the very first game was B-17 Barmer and Space Spartans. And they each sold about 300,000 games. And each one of those, because it had IntelliVoice, was priced more, obviously. So where you had a game at, or IntelliVoice at $79, uh, you know, they eventually, people didn't want to buy that and then spend more on games. So it kind of, you know, worked out, went away. So you also had games like, Woody Woodpecker had a game. Now, if you know who Woody Woodpecker is, yeah, he's kind of like Tom and Jerry and Bugs Bunny and all that stuff. But he's a woodpecker and he was crazy. And if you'd ever been in Universal Studios in the 70s or 80s, you probably thought he went to Woody Woodpecker land or saw something about him. But he had a game. Now, I still can't figure out how you could ever create a game with Woody Woodpecker. But they also had Tron Solar Sailor, which is the big ship that sails around. Um, and then they wanted to build a baseball game for it as well. So in t think of a televoice as this. Televoice, so far ahead of its time. It actually wasn't such a bad cost, but when you're spending a lot of money on your console and you got to buy all these other items, it's a talking game system, though. Why would you not want to buy a talking game system and play Tron? I do love Tron. And the potential for having wireless controllers. I mean, again, they were so far ahead, but the cost and the chipset might not have made it all the way there. All right. 
So then they had next level intelligence, intelligent twos, which were smaller, cheaper, and you had longer cords. Again, you had four packs. It actually had a different uh, a power cut connector as well, which allowed them to, uh, you know, have a different, a sm- we would call it today a smaller footprint, but, it, you know, smaller use of power. Um, they put in different controllers that had more of a tactile feel where you could feel what the number was on the controller as well. The addition was they also had a video input to the cartridge port, which would allow you to have this item called a system changer. The system changer would let you play Atari 2600 games. The system changer would let you play Atari 2600 games. No, you're not stuck in a loop. That's how cool it was. It allowed you to play another console's games. That's like saying, oh, Xbox, I'm going to take my CD and put it in my PlayStation 4. No, that doesn't work. All right. So longer cords. Oh, and you got burger time if you're in the U.S. If you like burger time, which if my friends Wayne and Kate listen to this, remember our burger time story that we had at that one uh, PAX we went to many, many years ago. And it's an awesome story. If you like got so many points or you got so many burgers, you got actual hamburgers. So I don't think we ate for like a day. Or I didn't eat for a day. I ate a lot of hamburgers that day. It was more like that uh, wimpy guy in the Popeye shows who ate a lot of stuff and didn't pay. But it was burger time came with it. Uh, it would allow you to play Atari games and it would actually allow you to use the Atari joysticks as well. Um, so, you know, again, how does Intellivision just keep going ahead? How do they get ahead of everybody? Well, there you go. All right. In 82, Intellivision 3 was talked about and they, re- you know, started building it. They had a prototype, but it got canceled in 1983. You know, they learned... What's really interesting is in television, learn something everyone else could not. Because in Intellivision 3, because Intellivision 2 would play all the Intellivision games, but Intellivision 3 was going to be a new system that would play old games. So it would play old Intellivision games. That's, you know, I mean, seriously, how these guys were so far ahead of everybody because, you know, they had 5,200. You know, or what, the 7800 wouldn't play 2600 and 5200 cartridges of the Atari. I mean, they're, I remember backwards compatibility. You couldn't play what Xbox games on the Xbox One, the originals. Ah, bummer. But you know, darn you, gaming crash, you killed it. There you go. That was my best cartoon thing. All right. So a new game system in 1981, and this was created again by Dave Chandler, his group started creating something called Decade. Or what would have been called a television four. Huge, huge chipset upgrade. Huge gr- graphics update. I mean, we're talking like 12-bit colors, which gives you 4,096 colors. It's amazing. It's huge, huge, huge. The problem is game crash. Everybody said, nope, we're going to hold back. We're not going to do this. Um, the decade probably would have led in television into the 90s if it came out in the, in, in 93, or I'm sorry, in 83 or in 84, it would have been out there. Um, what's really, 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 really crazy is that in 1982, and this is, you know, let's, we've talked about the decade on <clears throat> the competition of this, of how in television was against everybody is that they own 20% of the domestic video game market in 1982. 
So they were only moving up. They provided 25% of the revenue and 50% of the operating income of, income of Mattel Electronics. And this is all on Wikipedia, right? You can read this. But that's huge. 50% of the operating income for a division. That's your big thing. Again, Atari had all of the third-party development, but Intellivision was coming. It was if if the if we don't get so many games, if we don't get so many systems, or the keyboard doesn't get you know kind of showed, shuttled back, we're all talking about Intellivision instead of Atari, because Intellivision would have taken over Atari in a moment. Um, it was a bummer because the problem was is things went on through 1983. You started seeing groups losing people, dropping people, people going away. Okay. So with that, we then had the INTV Corp. We talked about them before. Um, they continued to get Intellivision out there. So in 1985, they had what they would con call the Intellivision Super System Pro, and they were still sending it out, still had World Championship Baseball, NFL Football, you know, they were developing games into 1991, um, which is kind of crazy because, you know, then they started creating games for the NES that were out there as well. So, you know, the crazy thing is out of all this is even after all of that. So we're, you know, we're kind of hitting that wall and you hit the Nintendo and Sega world is INTV, you know, was actually creating licensing agreements to put games on the Sega on the NES, on the Super NES, out there. You know, it's kind of great because there are 124 games or cartridges that were created out there and being put into one library. Now, what's really sad is I can't find that library on the Nintendo Switch right now. So if anyone at Intellivision uh, can help us out and get it out on the Switch, then I can play my Intellivision games on my Switch instead of having to put them on my computer. All right. Now... INTV kept trying to go and really just saw the, the, you know, Nintendo Sega was happening. And we'll talk about those guys later. I, I've been reading a great book. I read a great, read a great book, doing a lot of studying on it. But in 1989, uh, INTV and World Book Encyclopedia created Tudor Vision. Now, why is this awesome? Well, does anybody remember in 1989 being able to have a system that would be able to code the encyclopedia? Or were you still going to the library like me and looking up things on Microfish long before we had our internet? Oh, yeah, that's right. You, we were all doing that. So Tudor Vision was moving that into a gaming system, into a tool that could be taught. Now, it was also shelved. Bummer. I know a lot of these things show, but they were so far ahead of other things. I'm sure we'll find out at some point somebody stole something from Tudor Vision. And if you know anything about it, let us know. But, you know, Tudor Vision could have been, like I said, Encyclopedia Britannica, Microfiche. We could have just been using Tudor Vision and just saying, all right, I need to type this in, look it up, click, boom, boom, there we go. Um, I probably wouldn't have had a job in college because I had a library job, but that was a bummer. All right. So at this point, we would have a sad story to end, but I'm not going to leave you with a sad story this time. And I know this is getting to be one of our longer podcasts. I apologize, but in television was insane. It's huge. It's crazy. It's amazing. So trust me, good stuff is coming for the last seven to 10 minutes. All right. So in television productions came out and 
Intellivision lives again. So Intellivision lives was actually all those games that came out and they put them onto a CD and you could play them again on your computer. So in 19, you know, 1997, boom, they were all out there again. So again, and this was brought to us by Keith Robinson and Steven, and I want to say this right, Roni, who had been programmers. They got the rights for all the Intellivision games and released it. You can actually play this on the Nintendo DS. I recently just looked it up today. Um, and for anybody who doesn't remember MS-DOS or that cursor, that had the C colon forward slash. Actually, it was a backslash, unless you're laying upside down. Um, but this is, you know, going through the re-release of a game to play all your Intellivision games on your PC. You know, I had one of my friends who bought this because they had a computer that would run it. My computer wasn't. I was actually getting married and my oldest was getting ready to come visit us. Um, so no new computer for me. But the graphics on that were still really cool. And it was a lot of fun to look at. All right, so they created Intelligent Liz. Then we saw some other games, Intelligent Rocks out on compact discs. So these were all compiled. Um, you can find these, just so you know, out on eBay and all over the place on the internet. Really fun stuff. But then they created Intellivision Productions. And they were going to be able to develop tools or if you had an Intellivision so that you could create your own Intellivision games. You know, so the what we would call hobbyists of the of, of the of Intellivision world could create their own Intellivision games. It's still incredible that you could develop this. And they thought about it and they had the development tools to people's hands. So I could have created my own Intellivision game. I could have taken that Apple IIe game and read it, written it hand by, or typed it in, I guess, hand by, or line by line, not hand by hand. Why do I want to say hand there? No idea. But you could type it in line by line all the way in. It just blows my mind. Also, they wanted to create new Intellivision games. So they created some more Intellivision games. This is all occurring during when the Xbox and the PS4 are fighting it out. Who knew this? I didn't know this. I wish I'd known it. Probably when I bought an Xbox. Oh, wait, never mind. I worked for Microsoft at the time. I totally bought an Xbox. Okay. And then you have the Intellivision flashback, which is basically contemporary game controller um, that you can play and play the Intellivision on that. Um, everyone that I knew who did this and thought or thought about doing this or buying one, it, would, it had so much fun. You know, my only problem is that, okay, I end up with my Atari, my Intellivision, my NES, uh, Super NES, let's see, PlayStation, Sega, Oh, I can't say a Saturn. I could keep going here. Now it's at eight, nine. Am I nine or am I ten? I'm at nine. Oh, X, the original Xbox, PS3. I don't have enough HDMI ports. We none of us have enough HDMI ports. If you make TVs, put twenty HDMI ports on it. Call it a gaming TV. Charge us an extra. And I know you're going to want to charge an extra thousand dollars, but charge us an extra hundred dollars. You know those ports are cheap. Um, software can handle it. But seriously, there's no way to do this unless you buy like the little device that sits in the back and sometimes you have to manually push the button, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So anyhow, sorry about that. That was a rant there. But, you know, really it's hard to have all these extra consoles. I have four of them sitting on a shelf. I'm looking to my left right over here that I can plug in anytime I want to. So, all right. So in television entertainment, all right, 
So in May of 2018, that's right, three years ago, almost three years ago, Tommy Tallarico talked that he has acquired the rights to the Intellivision brand and games to create a new game console. So a new company, Intellivision Entertainment, was formed. Tallarico's president. The productions have been has been renamed Blue Sky Rangers. Okay, first, that's just cool. Like that's cool on a whole another cool level. Like that's cool on cool. That's like cool to the third power. Ah, that's too cool to the cool power. Let's go with that. Okay. But they they created this and at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo, which I now need to go to that when COVID is all over. They talked about the Intellivision Amico was revealed. This is huge. I can't wait to get to go back to cons one and go to go to visit and see friends and do all these kind of great things. But I got to be honest with you. It is incredibly cool. The things like a television and the thought process of people that built the Intellivision are coming back because we're not going to get the same old game churned out with new players or, you know, I mean, again, I love all those EA sports games and stuff like that, but it, television brought us a lot of cool stuff. And we're going to talk about a couple of those games too. Sorry. I know this is going long, but we are going to talk about those games, but I want to talk about the, the innovations of the Intellivision, why it was that Xerox again, ahead of the other, all other PCs. It was the first 16 bit game console. And that's going to be important when we talk about Sega and Nintendo, because when we talk about those guys and Intellivision was doing it years before them, it's crazy. First console that had video games using a tile based play field, which means you can have very detailed graphics. First system to have downloadable game in 1981. Play cable. Downloadable game. 1981. Who knew? It was the first console to provide new, real-time human voices in the middle of games with IntelliVoice. It had the first controller with a directional thumb pad. Remember, everybody else had a joystick. It was also the first game console or home computer to offer a musical synthesizer keyboard. It was so far ahead of its time. It's crazy. Okay. And television was also the first console to have a built-in character font. And it had a font, which, you know, how many people hate Comic Sans? Everybody. That's why I use it when I get a chance. But it had its own font built-in. Okay. We're going to talk about Utopia in just a second. But a Utopia was considered the first real-time, you know, basically construction and management. Yeah management simulation game or sim game. And then you had the first game world series, major league baseball that had 3d fields, statistics that were in there, historical, etc. So you remember we talked about that Xerox thing and television was, and still is ahead of everybody else. They think so much farther ahead than anyone else on on the genre. Okay, so let's talk about two games real quick, I promise. I'm not gonna, I can't promise that. They're really good games. First game is Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Cloudy Mountain. So this is basically a D&D game on a video game console and you have a quest. You're basically going in to find the resting place of the Broken Crown and you're going to rebuild this crown. 
and it had randomly generated rooms and corridors within a mountain range. So you would collect stuff, you would fend off monsters, you had a bow and arrow, fire it in eight directions, ta-da. So D&D was huge in the 70s because it just started, right? So everybody was huge. Plus you had crazy people saying that D&D, heavy metal, uh, chewing big leech, chew, chewing gum, remember that stuff. But, but that yeah, was making us go to school and or making us uh, hurt our friends and we were worshiping the devil and worshiping big league chew. Um, but it started us out and, and D and D was the first kind of with a story with statistics, with actual real time gameplay. So this is one of those gameplays that if you're in the beginning, you had advanced dungeons and dragons, cloudy mountain or dungeons and dragons, cloudy mountain. And it introduced us to RNG, random number generators, which have plagued most game players throughout all their life because they have an RNG problem. The other side of this was you had different levels based on a color scheme out there that were completely changing the way you looked at games. You didn't have just simple colors. You had real full colors in the map. And then the map moved around. So, you know, think of a game that's as close to D&D that has this RPG element available in 1982. 40 years later, we're still using these games. Okay. The way I can put this is if you were never, if you were ever forced to play a game and you ran out of your first three lives, you had to start from the beginning. This game, you got to kept, keep going. It gave you a continuation. You had to kill two dragons, not one dragon, two dragons to get the magic crown back together. As well as you had that random pathway, corridor, hallway, map changing. If you showed this to a game developer today, they would come back and go, wow, that's a pretty cool game. When was it developed? And you'd say 1982 or probably before 1982. And then they'd look at you and go, oh, my God, are you in a time machine? Did you bring this to the future? I'm kidding. They probably wouldn't say that. But you could play this on an emulator right now, and you would get hooked. It was it was one of my favorite. It actually based a lot of games against this game. And I played it probably like 10 times. Really awesome game. The other game, and this is one I actually just I played on the emulator on my computer. It's why this probably took three weeks because I was stuck on this game, was Utopia. Utopia is a strategy video game created by Don Daglow. Remember that name. Foreign television. And the Mattel Aquarius. We have to go look at that as we will add to the ColecoVision. But it was one of the first city building games. And it was a one of the first RTSs, real-time strategies. It's been re-released in things like the Xbox 360 console, game room service, games for Windows Live. Um, so think about this. Remember SimCity? We're talking about the simulation games. This game was ahead of that. So, so you have the SimCity, the Sims, Farmers Only. Oh, wait, no, that's the dating site. No, you had, you had your Farmville and things like that. Um, where simulation, Utopia was doing this. And I, like I said, I played this on an emulator. It was a great game doing RTS with stream simulation all at the same time. Now, the crazy thing is you have to play two player. So it was myself versus the 11 year old girl, Lucy. She's going to soon be 12. So we'll have a happy birthday. I don't know what game we're going to have to play on our birthday. We'll have to figure, maybe we'll have a new game there. I know we have at least two board games. 
but we played this against each other and it was so much fun because there are things that affect it like weather and rain make gives you can make your crops grow and there are pirates and you can send rebels over to bother other people there are you can you know sometimes things will happen where your rebels will go in and destroy another people or maybe you've made your people mad by not feeding them and they become rebels and they destroy things um, but you are constructing buildings you are able to move fish fishermen out and fish and things like that there were so many things about this game the, the funding rebel activity planting crops funding rebel activity building hospitals lots of fun there funding rebels and then the, of course funding rebels uh, it was actually a lot of fun to fish, farm, build things, see random things occur in the game. It reminded me a lot of an early version of Civilization Land Party when I used to do that. And you'd see barbarians getting your friend and you're like, oh, dang, no, 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 go get him. I want to win. Um, but it was just, it's amazing that two people could play this and you would sit there. I probably, if I'd had one of these things, I would never, I would probably have been just climbing out of my parents' basement right now. It would have been so much fun. Now, there is a legacy on this because GameSpy actually put Utopia into their Hall of Fame in 2004. It's considered, again, like I said, the original version of simulation, RTS. It, some people call it Civilization 0.5, so right before Civilization. Um, it is considered a genre. It created that strategy, real-time strategy, that simulation built into it. So um, anyone who may hear this for the television Amico, if they're building Utopia, which I've heard they are building it, if you need someone to test it, please let me know. Please. I'll, fly, I'll drive, fly to you. I mean, you know, this, it, like, this game's legacy is just such a great genre. It'd almost be like if my friend Wayne created Froyo. And he may have. I don't know. Because Wayne's really resourceful and intelligent. Um, go to a con with him. You will never get lost. He is always, and he knows when things are occurring. It's like, and he doesn't even care. I don't remember him ever looking at a map at one of these, but he really, really knows it. And it's just the same way, like I said, with Utopia. It just blows my mind. All right, last little bit. My final part about Intellivision. Best hardware, best software, great games. It is hard to find anything wrong with this. Yes, did it have problems with distribution? They have problems with chipset. Eh, everybody may have that. But I do think it's a tale of greatness, not enough resources. It was technology so far ahead of its time and people who were taking that technology so far ahead of its time and they carried the torch for as long as they could and created something that in effect changed the world. I guarantee you, Nintendo and Sega stole stuff from this. And people at Nintendo and Sega are like, oh, no, we didn't. I guarantee you, you looked at that and we're like, wow, that's a cool game. I want to play games like that. And we're like, yeah, that's cool. And you saw things that you liked or disliked when you were looking at, um, you know, the controllers, et cetera. And then, you know, that's if you get a chance and, you know, that, like I said, the <laughs> when the new Intellivision comes out, get a copy of it, play it. It will be a lot of fun. All right. I secretly always wanted one. Yeah, and because I saw it at Sears, Penny, Radio Shack, and yes, I was that kid that went to Radio Shack, walked around, and then would leave, and they probably thought I was stealing things. I never stole anything. I was just enthralled with seeing all the technology. And that Intellivision was such a fun, cool thing to do, and I almost never played the demo because the demo was like 30 seconds. So boring. If you get a chance to play an Intellivision emulator, play Intellivision Liz, get to the Amico, do it. Intellivision forever. I love Intellivision. This is one of my favorite research, and I did a ton of it. And even 
This one was only three weeks, not like four weeks. It was three weeks of reading and studying and playing. Go play some television.